an interior design student does an internship with L Brands in Columbus, Ohio, and now there's a shelf at Victoria's Secret in China called The Matthew. Matthew Ballard tells us how that came about. Also, I'll talk you into an argument. It's coming ahead on First You Hustle, a podcast from the Columbus College of Art and Design meant to help students and budding creative professionals put their expertise to use. When you walk into a retail shop, you can bet that every inch of the floor plan has been mapped, the materials heavily vetted, and displays precisely designed to make your shopping experience the best it can be. As e-commerce looms over brick and mortar, it could be the interior designers that end up saving retail. My name is Matthew Ballard. I am currently a junior at CCAD and I am majoring in interior design. This summer I worked for L Brands. And if you find yourself at an internship with L Brands, they're going to put you to work. And then I was given the creative freedom to kind of develop that and take my guidelines and kind of create something that I wanted to see implemented in stores. Um, so this is now called the Matthews fixture. Um, and this is being sent off and is being fabricated um, for one of our stores in China. And it kind of put into perspective how much we have to work with. And it really kind of helped me see and connect with what we're selling to the customer and what they need to see when they look in a store. The end goal is all about displaying the product when we're doing fixture development. Um, and this project really helped out with that. Shifting gears, I'll also take you through using argument rhetoric to ace the interview. No, this isn't an argument. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's just contradiction. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It is not. It is. You're just contradicting me. Hi, everyone. I'm Jordan Bell. Thanks for tuning in to First You Hustle. We have two segments today. Later, I check in with Matthew Ballard, an interior design junior at the Columbus College of Art and Design, and learn about a summer spent in retail design. Matthew's project is really detailed and a great insight into one part of interior design, that being the commercial and retail space, as well as a look into what a great internship program looks like. It's real-world experience, real-world projects, and lots of guidance and education along the way. But first, let's get into an argument. In fact, let's argue during an interview. Does that sound like a bad plan? Well, if you said yes, you're technically right. An argument in the sense of back and forth, like the quote that you heard in the intro from Monty Python, opposing viewpoints, conflict, contradiction, that's something you want to avoid in an interview, in fact, getting into an actual argument in an interview is almost a sure sign you won't get a call back. But make an argument as in take a stance is absolutely something you should do. This is an argument in the purest academic sense. It means presenting your case as best as possible so as to come to consensus with an employer. Argument is just consensus building. If you make the right argument about your abilities and interests, the employer will hire you. In an interview though, the other side will rarely have specific opposing viewpoints. They are generally open. They want to like you. Give them reasons to like you. So you can't really approach it like a debate, but there are some tactics of rhetoric that you can use to position yourself favorably. I'll scratch the surface by just covering two areas of rhetoric, tense and type. Tense will be familiar territory. You have past tense, present tense, and future tense. But when arguing in one of these tenses, you're actually changing what the argument is about. In an interview, some questions, or they could even merely be statements, might instinctively jump you into the wrong tense. You wanna make sure you avoid that. 
Here are a few example questions that I'm going to use to walk us through this exercise. They are, tell me about a time you had a conflict with a coworker. What would you say your biggest weaknesses are? Oh, I see you graduated with just a 2.9 GPA. You know, only one of these is actually a question. One is a request for information, and the other is just a statement and a response may or may not be needed. But in each case, you might get the instinct to jump into the past tense, which in rhetoric is the forensic tense and looks to seek blame. When something happens, it's the result of something else, and that something ends up being the blame. But blame in an interview will get you nowhere. It does nothing to forward your favorability with the interview. If anything, it gives you a technical out for being at fault for something, but it will never give you the advance you need to move forward in the process. Think about using blame to your advantage in our example questions. It's nearly impossible. Tell me about a time you had a conflict with a coworker, and you respond, Well, Harry was always in a bad mood and seemed to want to take it out on me. He'd often find small details to nitpick, and we didn't always see eye to eye on things. Or the interviewer says, I see you graduated with just a 2.9 GPA, and you jump in with, well, there were a few professors who never gave out A's, and they seemed to take pride in making C's the highest grade you could get. Even if the interviewer buys into that, it still doesn't help them evaluate you as a potential employee. Even if you shifted the blame onto yourself and not others, it still doesn't help. Are you saying conflicts are your fault? Getting poor grades is just something you do? It won't help. So change the tense. Present tense is a demonstrative argument that's about values. This is a much better venue to make an argument when hoping to be selected for a job. What are your values? How do you work? This is what interview questions are designed to evaluate. No one cares about the specific conflict you had with Harry. They care about why it happened, how did you deal with it, and why the conflict was resolved well. These answers come from talking about values. So let's reimagine some responses in the present tense. So tell me about a time you had a conflict with a coworker and you respond, I've always been a big picture thinker. I look at the whole product. A coworker tends to get focused on the small details and sometimes you wouldn't see eye to eye on the importance of those small details. I found that we could work together to identify what would be best for the goals of the project. And after this happened a couple times, we'd start meeting beforehand to review to-dos and divide up tasks. This helped us focus on the end result instead of getting bogged down on small things. And you know, you could even take this answer further to show new learning. You know, I'd say for both of us, it helped us find that perfect balance of attending to details, but also getting in focus the bigger picture. And you know, from that, you don't get a sense that conflicts happen because of a specific person. You know, there's really no blame assigned. It's just that they happen and conflicts do happen. The focus of the response is on reaction and processing. These are values an employer can see being utilized in the office. Now, let's say they give you the old, I see you graduated with just a 2.9 GPA. Or, you know, really any statement where they're kind of saying something bad but not asking you a question. A values-based response might be to say something like, well, you know, I chose a few challenging classes in a specific area. Well, the grade might not be the best. I'm glad I challenged myself to push the limits in that discipline. And I feel like I ended up learning more than if I'd taken lower-level classes. Now, in order to give this response, one, it needs to be true and genuine, but two, it also shows that you can own results even if they aren't favorable, that you recognize the value of a challenge and are ambitious to give it a try. Value-based arguments are often used by politicians. Look for it in this election cycle. It'll be pretty hard to miss. Politicians use it because it's essentially community building. What community do you belong to? In an interview, you want to base your response in a values approach because it will connect you to the culture of the business. 
A sharp interviewee will know the values, mission, and goals of an organization and position their responses to appeal to those very ideals. If you aren't genuine when you do this, it will show. But for those that genuinely connect to the ideals of the employer and then know how to articulate that in their interview response, will end up getting offers. Value-based arguments also help you show current, employable attributes. It gives a sense of how you will be as an employee today, not as you were yesterday. But there's also another tense. We haven't talked about the future. Isn't future tense even better than present tense because you hope to be employed with the company in the future? You know, in theory, you might think so, but future tense is a deliberative argument meant to come to a decision. This is something you'll likely use more when you're actually employed by the company and not so much when you're hoping to get an offer. Now, why not? Well, a choice means you understand alternatives. In an interview, you only know two alternatives, hire me or hire someone else. Therefore, you can't do much deliberative arguing to position yourself as better than not hiring you because... The elephant in the room is that there are other people they could hire. You know, if you were to say, why hire me? Well, if you don't, who will do this job? That isn't a good argument because someone will do the job and they can't tell you who and you don't know who that person is. If you did, and as politicians do, you can start making deliberative arguments by positioning yourself against another person. You can't really do that in an interview, though, because it's all about fit. Why do you fit in? So a values-based approach means you'll connect more strongly than a comparison. In management, once hired, you might find deliberative approaches to be more effective, though, because it focuses the involved parties on coming to a solution. So anytime you see a question that skates into the negative or puts you on the defensive, even lightly, you know, the why should we hire you question, it's a question that you answer in defense. Try not to. Stick to values. Why are you the right employee? You'll use real examples. You'll talk about accomplishments and possibly failures, but you'll want to wrap it up in values, especially do this when you've left a past job on not so good terms. You'll avoid blame and your answer will present things that hopefully are admirable and employable. You know, lawyers seek blame, but they are hinging on the jury to believe them more than the other lawyer. If you seek blame, you're essentially leaving it up to verdict. Do they believe you? But if you seek values, you'll know you gave them good things to consider. And really, you did the best you possibly could. And that brings me to the final part of our rhetoric lesson today. Type. Logos, ethos, and pathos. This is an appeal to logic, character, or emotion. When we listen to someone, we buy into what they are saying based on some mix of the three. So for logos, that's logic. The appeal comes from explaining and using logic to establish your authority. So if I explain a technique to you and show you how to do it, you'll buy in that I'm an authority on how to do that and you'll you'll kind of pick up what I'm putting down. Now, if I use an appeal to ethos, I might give you some kind of credential. So the best example of this is someone that's giving you advice on what to do in case of a tornado and you're watching a video and the Chiron comes up and it says, this is Dr. So-and-so, chief meteorologist with the National Weather Center. That's their ethos. They're establishing character that I'm with this authority on weather and I have a doctorate. So you kind of put together that, hey, what they're saying, I might actually buy into. And then pathos is emotion. So that's appealing to emotion, but that doesn't mean just begging. It actually means matching the emotion of your party. So if you know the temperament of the people that you're talking to, you want to match that temperament. And we talk about this in interviewing all the time. You want to match the room. You want to match the culture of the organization. If it is 
you know, light and loose and uh, everyone has a lot of energy or is it more uh, contemporary? Do they have everyone's wearing suits? Is there mahogany everywhere? What's the look and feel of the organization and what are the behaviors of the people that work there? How do you want to reflect that in what you're saying? That's why some emotional arguments work on some people, but they don't work on others because it's not about dialing up the emotion. It's about emotion matching. So I want to get into my interview with Matthew at L Brands. And actually, Matthew, unbeknowingly, uses a lot of the tactics that I just talked about, talking about values-based approaches, using a lot of logos, but also a good establishment of ethos by establishing what is L Brands and why are they an important company. So as you listen to the interview, you'll see rhetoric just is kind of used naturally. But this lesson is hopefully to give you some insight into how you can use it purposefully when you're interviewing. I'll also summarize some of Matthew's points reflecting on rhetoric at the end of the interview. So let's jump into it. Here's my interview with Matthew Ballard, interior design student at Columbus College of Art and Design. So my name is Matthew Ballard. I am currently a junior at CCAD and I am majoring in interior design and I have a double minor in business and design research. Um, this summer, I worked for L Brands, which was formerly known as Limited Brands. Um, but you might know us as the five companies that we represent uh, Victoria's Secret, Pink, Bath and Body Works, Lasenza, and Henry Bendel. So it's mostly a company that's geared towards uh, women's lingerie and women's beauty. So that's who our main clientele is. Um, a little bit about the company that I worked with this summer. Uh, we are the largest founder-led specialty retailer. Um, our CEO and current acting um, founder, Les Wexner, is one of Ohio's um, biggest philanthropists. He's also Ohio's wealthiest man. He started L Brands um, with his very first specialty store in Columbus. Um, and now we are currently a $13 billion company. Um, and I currently worked in the international um, division of L Brands um, with store design and construction, more specifically Victoria's Secret Beauty and Accessories um, with the travel retail uh, team. So I essentially helped uh, and assisted in the creation of international airports um, around the world. So that was kind of what I helped the team do. It was a pretty you small mean stores team. in international airports. Is it correct? Okay. Yes. So, yep. Um, and so currently, our enterprise has more than eighty-eight thousand associates. Whether that's at the home office in Columbus, um, in our district office in New York City on Fifth Avenue, um, or associates uh, in and around our stores worldwide. Um, so we like to present ourselves as a family of brands, um, and currently we're located in over 75 countries with approximately 3,900 stores worldwide. So as far as my position is concerned, um, for the 12 weeks that I was in my internship over the summer, I did a variety of tasks to kind of assist my team um, in progressing the overall um, kind of track of where our stores were being as far as um, the development was concerned. Um, so it starts with a proposal to our partner um, in a country where we either have um, a large footprint or a non-existent footprint. Um, so this summer we kind of focused on spreading our wings with um, VSBA, which is Victoria's Secret Beauty and Accessories. Um, what kind of makes my team unique is that Victoria's Secret is known for selling um, bras and panties. Um, mostly bras, but in airports, that's the one thing we don't sell just because our research has led us to believe. Uh, and we've seen that um, selling bras in airports isn't really feasible mm -hmm. just because putting them in luggage, they're heavy, they're big, they take up space. Um, in airports, people are more geared towards um, purchasing fragrances, gift sets, 
um, luggage, luggage tags, things like that. So we kind of gear our product line in international airports more towards the international traveler, mm -hmm. um, keeping in mind like what they can bring on the aircraft and what they might be looking for in a different country. Um, so we, my very first project um, was for um, an airport uh, in Tokumen, which is in Panama City, Panama. Um, so currently there were two bids and two proposed sites that we could um, kind of propose to our partner. Um, so this was for T1, which is our first bid. So this was the proposed store plan that I created. Um, so kind of working in AutoCAD um, and Google SketchUp and just keeping in mind the company standards what the regional requirements were, what the company requirements were, um, and then working with our partner to kind of figure out what our limitations were. Um, just because proposing and creating stores and airports, they have a lot of restrictions um, as far as electrical, running wire, uh, running water, um, the flooring, slip resistance, and fireproof, mm -hmm. um, just the flammability of what we put in our store. Yeah. Um, so for something like this, uh, did they give you like a template to adjust from, or is it basically like a blank floor? And you Essentially, know like, it's a blank floor. And, and they um, just say, go to town? Yes. Okay. So our partner kind of proposes to us in, in our um, in our ready-to-start package, which is what we call um, the kind of bundle of information that our partners give to us before we can give them a proposal of what we would like to see happen. Um, they gave us the existing footprint of the store, um, what they expect the store should perform um, monetary-wise. That's called a PAR. So PAR is what the store, how the store performs forms and how much product it sells within its first year after opening. Um, so smaller stores tend to have pars of $500,000 to $700,000 and our um, best performing stores tend to have pars of 4.2 anywhere to $5.2 million a year. Um, so it's kind of a really big size difference as far as what we could potentially work with. Um, so we work with full assortment stores, which have all of our fixture lineups. Um, so panty tables, wall cabinets, video, uh, focals, um, point of sale cash wraps, um, or they can just be single gondolas where they're kind of like stop and shop where a customer might go to one of our um, wall cabinets or a gondola, take a fragrance off the shelf, and then go to someone else uh, and purchase that product. Um, so it was a quite a wide variety that I worked with over the summer. So this was one of our storefront renderings that we had created for the project. Um, so this was the store, um, this was the uh, floor plan that I had proposed. And then we send off this floor plan to a third party renderer and they um, render um, the floor plan that is proposed to them. And then they send that back to us and then we give this to our partner just so they can more e um, easily visualize like what the store is going to look like. Yeah, that, that render that you're showing is more of like a photo of what the, it, it, it's photo based, right? They're using like... Correct. Images, so they, yeah. they take a picture of the existing store mm -hmm. and then they go ahead and render all of this in Photoshop. So okay. all of what you're seeing right now is done in Photoshop. I see. So taking yeah. existing pictures of stores and kind of mashing them together. Mm -hmm. um, so then we also worked with a lot of materials. Um, like I said, certain restrictions in airports kind of limit um, what kind of flooring we could use, what kind of wall coverings we can use just to adhere to. Um, and like, is that a security thing? It or? is. It's mm -hmm. for security. It's also for... Um, like flammability and in the case of fire or flood or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, so working in different countries, some of them have no requirements. Um, a lot of the countries that we work in, in uh, South America, uh, North Africa, um, they kind of are um, more 
flexible as far as like what we can put in the store. Um, whenever we can kind of have free range with whatever we want to do, we say we own that. So like if we can have whatever we want as a flooring, we say we own the floor or we own the ceiling or mm -hmm. we own the storefront. Um, but in Europe um, and then in Asia, um, and then in China as well, especially China, there are a lot of restrictions that we have to follow, um, a lot of set guidelines that are non-negotiable, um, such as uh, fire ratings. So there's something for China, they have a B1 fire rating, which is what all of the wall coverings and cabinetry uh, must be. Um, and so just keeping in mind the existing hardware as far as like sprinklers, um, water plumbing, um, we have to keep all of that in mind when we propose our floor plan to the partner. Mm -hmm. Um, so these are just any of the given materials that we could work with. Um, so we're working with an embossed black wall covering, um, black lacquer jet black paint for the wall cabinets and fixtures. Um, we do um, polished or matte um, quartz and marble flooring. We work with uh, black glass and black metal, chrome, stainless steel, mm -hmm. um, kind of we keep in mind and we kind of work with the same materials just so the brand is um, kind of consistent in every retail location. So as someone that's, you know, designing, uh, do you only have access to the materials on in images like that? Or do you have access to actually physically interact with them? Like, was that, was that a, a part of it or was it just like, yeah, so this looks good. So we'll use it. Or did you actually get to touch and feel? And yeah. So we have a materials library at work where we could kind of see what we're working with. Mm -hmm. Um, on the top floor of uh, of L Brands, there's uh, something called a mock store, which is um, a fully constructed store that we kind of like to experiment in before we implement this in stores uh, across the world. So we'll use new materials and create new wall cabinets and kind of put them in the mock store before we kind of ship them off and have them manufactured by third party and then um, installed in the retail location, especially for custom jobs where we have to kind of work with custom sizing, custom finishes, custom materials. We always order swatches um, and we experiment with with like their durability before we actually send that off and have those fixtures made. Um, so the whole process of um, proposing a storefront um, to actually like opening the store could take anywhere from six to 24 months. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. okay. So it's quite a long process. It's a very involved process. Yeah, and that's quite a range too. So yep. what, what might stretch it to be two years? Um, especially if there, um, a lot of our stores, um, in South America, there are a lot of problems, um, with importing fixtures. Um, there aren't really any manufacturers that we have access to within that continent. So we usually have to construct things, um, in the States or in China and then ship it overseas to South America, um, and just getting through customs, um, and getting all of that paperwork filed that can take quite a long time. Oh Yeah. So every week we have something called weekly design review, which is when our design team, um, half of us are based in New York City and half of us are based in Columbus. Um, one, one, of, um, one group either goes to New York for the week or goes to Columbus for the week um, where we have a weekly design review meeting, which is where we kind of go over um, all of the progress we made uh, in that week following up to that meeting. Um, and this is where we get critique and feedback on um, design ideas, feasibilities, floor plans, um, all of that good stuff. So another part of my job was creating um, lots of breakdowns and uh, visual aids as far as um, kind of who we are as a team and what we do as a brand. Um, and a lot of this material we present to the partner. Um, and also we just have that within our team um, for organization purposes and keeping track of everything. Um, so I was using a lot of graphic design skills as well as interior design skills. Um, 
so really utilizing the full Adobe Creative Suite. So uh, Adobe InDesign, Photoshop, Illustrator, mm-hmm. all of those were used pretty heavily along and with AutoCAD and Google SketchUp. So graphic design, is that something that you had practiced before or was this kind of your first jump into you know doing that type of, that type of work? Yeah, so I had taken um, Design Lab 1 um, first semester of my sophomore year, which is required for most majors that deal with graphic design. So, um, of course, graphic design and advertising, um, photography, interior design, a little bit of illustration. Um, so that's kind of where I learned the basics on how to use these programs. Um, so taking that course really kind of benefited me in my internship um, as far as being able to use the programs and not having to um, take the time to learn the programs before I could complete my work. Okay, yeah. So while I was with the Victoria's Secret Beauty and Accessories team, um, we did a lot of uh, cross collaboration with Bath and Body Works just because uh, we like to position our stores right next to each other um, in most uh, locations if we can. Um, so working kind of with the same fixture lineup um, and the same kind of materials with Bath and Body Works. Um, there was a lot of meetings where I was meeting with designers from the other company, um, the other brand, um, and we were doing a lot of the um, same things as far as like um, proposing um, plans to partners. The process is kind of the same, um, just the focus was different as far as what we're selling to the customer. So Bath and Body Works is um, kind of an apothecary style store. Um, so they sell candles and fragrances um, and soaps and lotions and kind of beauty products and self-care products. Um, so a little bit different than uh, women's lingerie, um, panties, sleepwear, activewear, things that um, I was used to seeing. Um, a really fun project that I had exposure to and kind of the freedom kind of take up and kind of do whatever I wanted to with um, was um, photographing and documenting all of the products that we sell in our stores um, and then dimensioning those products and putting that together in a reference file. Um, So I was able to go up into the mock store um, in the home office and photograph every single product that we sell um, in our VSBA store. So all of the fragrances, the the glass bottles they're in, the boxes they're in, all noting all of the different sizes because a lot of the time we sell the same product in multiple sizes. Um, so there's like the full size, the mini size, and then the travel size. So going through and kind of dimensioning all of these was really useful as far as knowing what product we were putting in um, the fixtures. Um, and it kind of put in a perspective um, how much we have to work with. Um, and it really kind of helped me see and connect with what we're selling to the customer and what they need to see when they look in a store. Because mm-hmm. um, the end goal is all about displaying, um, displaying the product when we're doing fixture development. Um, and this project really helped a Uh, really helped out with that. And then another unique opportunity I had with my internship was uh, was to develop my own fixture um, that was being implemented in stores um, in different locations across the world. So I um, was given the footprint of a fixture called the Heinemann Box and Box. And so I was instructed kind of what the company wanted to see as far as developing the fixture and customizing it. Um, And then I was given the creative freedom to kind of develop that and take my guidelines and kind of create something that I wanted to see implemented in stores. Um, So this is now called the Matthews fixture. um, And this is being sent off and is being fabricated um, for one of our stores in China, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so what what kind of changes did you make to the... uh, Um, As far as adding shelves, um, kind of reducing the overall footprint Mm -hmm. of the fixtures while kind of making it smaller um, while maintaining the capacity of product that was going within the fixture, Um, changing the shelf layout, adding lighting, changing the materials... Um, So this project kind of took a week to complete, um, and then the revisions on that 
um, fixture kind of took an extra two weeks after that. So this was the first version of that. El Burns was really great in saying that all of the work I created, um, I could put in my portfolio and use okay. that for my future job internships, um, using that um, to reference in my studio work, in the classroom, um, and then just kind of displaying what I did during my time there. Yeah, so you've been showing us this book that has all these layouts and revisions and basically everything you've been working on. Do you get to keep this book, or does I go, do? Yes. You know, so mm-hmm. that's that's uh, that's a pretty uh, thorough kind of takeaway for, for being is, able yeah. to show to someone. Uh, so yeah, let's maybe transition from what you did, which was a lot, to kind of how you did. So how did the internship experience go, and maybe what were some things that you learned uh, professionally? You know, I always talk about. There's your technical skills, which are kind of everything you just talked about. And then there's your professional skills, just kind of being prepared to be a professional designer. How do you feel like that aspect of the internship went? Um, When I first started um, my internship with L Brands, I had a difficult time kind of understanding the language um, of retail design and corporate design and more specifically international design. Um, Just getting used to the measurement conversions um, and then working with partners who essentially don't really speak English sometimes. um, That kind of took a while to get used to. Um, But working closely with my manager and referencing my onboarding binder, which has this really long list of acronyms that we might use in meetings, um, I was able to pick up kind of the L Brands lingo um, in the first couple weeks of my time. Um, And then just that kind of progressed through the summer and the 12 weeks I was there. Um, and my focus kind of shifted from understanding what I was experiencing and what I was hearing to kind of making my contributions to um, those meetings um, using the lingo and the language that I learned and kind of using that in interpreting my designs um, and sharing that with people um, within the company and all across the world. How easy was it to kind of you know, bone up on lingo and things like that. Were were you able to ask questions, or was that or was it too intimidating? You kind of had to nod and then secretly find yeah. out later what <laughs> what it was you just nodded to. Yeah, at first it was a lot of just nod, smile, and kind of write down mm-hmm. essentially what I didn't understand, and then kind of research after that meeting what I'd heard and kind of determine what was being um, talked about. Um, that kind of focused um, and shifted. Um, to kind of interpreting it internally what I was hearing. And then once I was able to understand that, um, I kind of still maintained my kind of uh, silence per se, um, just because I wanted to confirm that I was understanding things properly um, before contributing my own opinions and designs. Um, I would say probably the last six six weeks, probably halfway through my internship, um, was when I really started to contribute my own opinions and thoughts. Um, and I was able to do that effectively in meetings with people who I had not worked with, um, as well as my own team. And let's talk about that team aspect. How many how many people were you regularly interacting with, and then how many people throughout your internship did you end up working with? Like, what was that range like? Yeah, so the people who I kind of met with on a weekly and a daily basis, there were about eight of us. Um, so two of our designers are in New York City, um, and our design director is in New York as well. They would come in for two days a week, uh, most of the time on Wednesdays and Thursdays, and then that would be the full team where we'd have those large meetings. Um, but I would um, frequently go to weekly meetings with um, members of our finance team, um, our legal team, um, and just a lot of our partners as well. Um, so I regularly worked with the same probably 20 people. Um, but over the course of the summer, I probably had exposure to hundreds of professionals across L Brands. 
And, and that must mean you have hundreds of different styles and personalities and you know, what yes. was it like yeah. getting used to um, that navigating that, like how, how you interact with people based on who they are, you know, and how they want to be interacted with. Being in meetings was almost easy in the sense that everyone is kind of adhering to this same kind of schedule. Everyone knows what needs to be talked about in the meeting. Um, So there's not really much room for personality when we have a lot of things to cover in maybe an hour or two um, during that meeting time. But when it was just my team at the desks and we were just working and collaborating um, kind of more freely, that kind of took some time to kind of gauge what the personalities I was working with were. Um, and then how to kind of communicate um, with my with my coworkers effectively, um, and kind of gauging what was the most beneficial way of conveying my opinions to them in a way that wasn't offensive, was understandable, um, and also was respectable as well. What advice pre internship would you give to someone either to you know find themselves in a position like this or you know what they have to look forward to? What what would be your advice if you could kind of talk to yourself two years ago? What would you yeah. have said? If I were to talk to myself two years ago, I'd say figure out what kind of interior design you would like to work with. There's a really big difference from residential design to retail and corporate design um, as far as who you work with, um, how active you are in the design process, um, and kind of the different job requirements you might have. Um, I fortunately have had experience with both residential and retail design. Um, With retail, um, you work with a lot more people. You have a more specific process um, and a more specific job description um, rather than residential design where you kind of oversee the entire design process from start to finish. Um, You work directly with your clients. Um, With retail, there wasn't really any direct correlation with who we were selling to just because who we sell to is such a a huge range. Um, It's a big market. Um, So kind of the the focus in interior design is a little different. Well, great. Well, I'm really glad that you were able to come in and share your experience uh, at Elbridge. It sounds like a fantastic internship. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thank you for sharing. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to Matthew Ballard for giving such a detailed look at an awesome internship. As I mentioned at the top of the interview, Matthew, without even really intending to, utilized some great rhetorical tactics. By establishing the scope of and mission of Elbridge as a company, It gives credentials for talking about the projects later on. If Matthew had simply discussed the tactics of retail design without mentioning L Brands, you might doubt whether this is the best authority on the topic or not. However, by knowing L Brands and Victoria's Secret, you're already visioning the end result. So Matthew talks about the work completed, but doesn't need to focus on emphasizing the quality of the results. And why not? Because we know the work Matthew did is being used in real Victoria's Secret stores. If it meets the threshold to be included there, We already know it must be remarkable work, and this is because of the reputation of the brand. So Matthew, not even intentionally, made a logos appeal, logic, by detailing what work was done, but then did need to, quote, spike the football on its success because of the established ethos, the character, for the brands that used the designs. So that brings us full circle to our first segment where we talked about ethos, logos, and pathos. Look for those when you're speaking with people or people are speaking to you. What appeals are they making? And keep that in mind too when you're preparing to talk to others. How will you get their attention and keep their attention? The people who do it the best are using a mix of all three. So that's our show. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or like us at facebook.com slash first you hustle. We'll see you next time. Take care. Take care.
Our theme is Jimmy H. Boogaloo, Creative Commons license from the Free Music Archive.